Yo, yo, what is happening? How are you? I hope you are good when you are tuning into this podcast. I've been missing for a while. Um, it has now been three weeks, nearly, which is a, a little bit over quota, which I'm not particularly happy about, but it's for a very good reason. There's been interesting things happening. Changes, um, as happens over time, I suppose. Um, I have moved my podcast to Substack. If you're a fan of the podcast, you will know how regularly I complain about social media and the hypocrisy of me mainly being on social media while giving out about social media has gotten a bit much for me. So the idea is that changing to Substack, the podcast and my blogs are in one place and I'll communicate with people via email. Obviously, you can go on the Substack and listen to it. The podcast will still be on Spotify. It'll still be on YouTube. Um, I'll still post stuff on Instagram. You know, it'll be there. But the idea is to get people off of the social media because I just, you know, at this point, I'm starting a PhD about the ethical issues of social media. I need to figure out a different way of doing things. You know what I mean? It's It's gone a bit far. So... If you want to join the Substack, there's a link, obviously, in the description. There's a link in the description of the podcast. There's going to be links in the social media ones. Um, You join with email. You get a welcome email. It'll send you the latest content. And then going forward, obviously, it's a fortnightly podcast and weekly blogs, mainly just addressing the issues that we face as individuals in the 21st century, philosophical solutions for philosophical problems, teaching you how to think, not what to think. It's going to be pretty dope. I'm very excited about it and this next leg of the journey. So without further ado, I, I might as well introduce the podcast that you're here for, which is with Dr. John Sellers. Uh, John is a author of many best-selling books on Stoicism, including the quite famous Lessons in Stoicism, which we talk about and I think is the most lucid introduction to Stoicism that exists. John's work is deeply, deeply philosophical, but also very accessible for people. So in this conversation, we're mainly focusing on introducing people to Stoicism. If you're already familiar with Stoicism, there'll be a lot of interesting stuff for you there as well, digging a little bit deeper into the values that underlie the philosophy, this particular Stoic techniques for dealing with your thoughts, for living a good life, and overall for mental health, um, that seems to be really what this ancient philosophy is about. And so we really get into it in this one. There's there's a lot of good stuff in there um, and you'll learn a lot from it. And hopefully that will benefit you in your life because that's the point of this. So I'll get out of the way now and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Bo- Welcome back, everybody. I am joined today by a very special guest, Dr. John Sellers, uh, one of my favorite Stoic writers. He's a reader in philosophy at Royal Holloway University of London, uh, an affiliate with King's College London, and has written numerous brilliant best-selling books about Stoicism that I'm a huge fan of. So welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Well, and I suppose just to start off with... um, 
I mean, the last book I read of yours, which was the Lessons in Stoicism, I was kind of saying it to you beforehand, but I it just feel like it's the most lucid book on Stoicism I've ever read because it can be a complicated topic, but the ideas are so well presented. Um, is making Stoicism accessible for people a goal of yours? Is it something that has been driving you since, you know, your early work? Um. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, and uh, I mean, that was certainly the goal behind that book. I wouldn't say that it was something I was always striving to do from early on. I mean, to be honest, it's the sort of book that I had hesitations about writing for quite a while. Um, I mean, as you said in the introduction, I'm an, I'm an academic. That's what I do. There are plenty of other people out there who write the kind of popular self-helpy books about stoicism um giving people sort of practical advice on how to change their lives and my my first instinct was well there are other people that are better qualified to do that than me right i'll stick to the academic side of stuff and and let other people be the self-help gurus um so i kind of decided some years ago i won't do that kind of thing and then the publisher approached me and and had a very clear idea of what they wanted and I just thought, you know what, that's the sort of thing that I can do. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, for anyone who's read the book, I mean, it's not really giving sort of explicit self-help lessons. It's more just trying to present those core stoic ideas with a bit of historical information about the, the individuals involved, just to try to bring them to life a bit. And then hopefully people can can see for themselves which bits are going to be useful for them and they can kind of make their own self-help lessons out of the historical and philosophical material that I've tried to present. Yeah, it's almost a hard thing to do to present stoic ideas without the kind of self-help stuff in it because it's so focused on how to live and the practicalities of life. I wonder, as an academic, did you come across stoicism much in your academic work? Because I did, my BA was in philosophy and I didn't hear about stoicism until much later. It's almost kind of exempt from academia, really as far as I could see. I mean, you're right. It's not a, or traditionally, it's not been a big element in the philosophy curriculum, right? So for many people who studied philosophy will know they'll probably learn quite a bit about Plato and Aristotle, and then they'll jump forwards a huge distance, maybe all the way to Descartes and skip almost 2000 years of the two and a half thousand years of the history of philosophy. It's insane if you think about it. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the sort of experts who've written um, on Stoicism from an academic point of view are often in classics departments rather than philosophy departments, which is part of the reason. Um, so, I mean, I came across it tangentially, might, it might be the best way to put it. So I was interested in a range of different later philosophers. Um, one of those would be Spinoza, who talks a lot about um, you know, emotions and, and Nietzsche as well would be another one. You know, every philosophy student, you know, has their time reading Nietzsche, right? Everyone goes to that stage. And, and there are interesting connections, I think, between both of those figures and certain Stoic ideas and various other things I was reading as well. And I suddenly realized that the common theme um, joining together all the different things that I'd become most interested in was they all had some kind of relationship to these strange ancient guys called the Stoics. And so I thought that was definitely something worth going back and uh, digging into a bit deeper. 
Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting way to come, kind of go all the way around through Spinoza and Nietzsche and kind of come back to the Stoics then. Um, I was introduced by Donald Robertson, who I've had in the podcast before, and I know you guys have done a lot of podcasts together um, previously. But as kind of, yeah, in a, almost like a self-help kind of way, it, Stoicism's had this major comeback. And I know you're very involved with ancient philosophy in general. So, I mean... Why do you think that it's become so popular all of a sudden or that it's had this resurgence? You know, is there something in the 21st century that's looking at ancient philosophy and, you know, taking something from it again? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. And unsurprisingly, it's one I've been asked a number of times before. It's yeah. really difficult to, to pin down precisely why. I mean, I mean, one thing I'll say is when Donald and I and a group of other people all came together um, about 10 years ago, and first started to think about um, ways in which we might present this material to a wider audience, but also, um, equally as important, to test it and see if it might actually help people or not. I mean, these were the two ideas behind Stoic Week when we first set that up. Um, we had no idea whether anyone would be interested at all. I mean, yeah. if we got a few hundred people to do it, I think we would have thought that would have been a great success. Here that someone like Ryan Holiday would go on and have a, you know, a multi-million bestseller on Stoic philosophy, that was beyond anything we could have conceived at that point. So we certainly didn't think that it would attract that wide an audience. Um, and as for why, um, well, I mean, it's very difficult because I think there are a number of very different audiences that are drawn to it, right? I mean... I mean, I'm tempted to say that people that have a broadly secular outlook on life might not feel particularly attached to any organized religion, might simply be looking for some kind of framework and some kind of ethical guidance yeah. for how to live. So that might be one explanation, right? Um, you know, late, the, what, are, what are the values of late capitalism that we're all surrounded by all the time? You know, buy more stuff, work harder and harder, and eventually you'll be happy. And after a certain point, people realize that might not really work out the way that we've been told it should. So so that's one that's perhaps one line. Right. Um, but there are plenty of people that I've encountered who are strongly committed to a number of different traditional religions who also will turn to stoicism for, for sort of extra advice and guidance. So that can't be the whole story. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very difficult to pin down just just one reason in particular. I mean, perhaps I should bounce the question back to you. What was it that attracted you to it? I know I was going to say there, actually, that's a good, um, as yeah, as a member of the audience. Um, yeah, what attracted me, I got into it during the pandemic because I was looking for something. I kind of came across it also tangentially, I suppose, being interested in philosophy, but then kind of looking for some through like CBT and trying to find like mindfulness techniques, basically, for dealing with. The complexity of everything that was going on you know emotional responses some anxiety and wanting to kind of figure out a way of kind of interacting with my emotions better um and then kind of learning that you know stoicism is the philosophical foundation of cbt and that was a kind of fascinating journey but it was definitely the the complexity of the time we were in that really attracted me and the the values behind it um which I think I, I watched one of your talks recently about uh, from the Aurelius Foundation actually on the values of it. I wonder for the people listening, you know, what are the 
the foundational values of Stoicism. I wonder, could we lay that out first? Um, because that was something I found that was so attractive uh, to the philosophy. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, that's one of the big questions that I take it we all need to ask ourselves at some point. You know, what has value for us? What's really important? What are the things that we want to pursue? Um, you know, we're, we're constantly overloaded um, and bombarded by information and competing pressures on our time. And, you know, you can't do everything. We've got to make, make those difficult choices about what matters most. And so the Stoics want to give an account of, of, of where value resides. And they're picking up a kind of a traditional debate in, in, in Greek philosophy. Um, we see Aristotle and various others talk about this as, as well. Um, so a lot of people think that um, it's pleasure that they want. Um, uh, they pursue pleasure, they avoid pain. This is a kind of very common view. A lot of people are kind of implicitly kind of hedonists in that sense, we might say. Um, yeah, um, Aristotle talks about the idea that some people think that money is the key to a good life. And he immediately says, well, what a joke, right? Who on earth in their right mind would ever believe that, right? <laughs> if only he were around today, <laughs> the state we're in. Um, but the Stoics, the Stoics really follow the example of Socrates in arguing that the one thing that's absolutely key to living a good life is developing the right frame of mind, right? So it's all about character, about getting those right character traits in place um, and focusing on how you think about the world, right? So, I mean, there are a number of different things that are all sort of interrelated, but basically it's all mental and it's all internal. Um, I mean, these days we might characterize it in terms of mental health even, right? You've got to get your stuff together. Um, and that's the thing that's going to determine whether you live a good life or not. And if you've got your head in the right place, then even if circumstances go against you and you have really bad luck, um, you'll still be able to weather that storm because you'll have those internal um, mental resources, right? Um, but conversely, even if you're incredibly successful and everything goes really well and you've got loads of money and success and fame, if internally your head's a mess, you're still not going to be able to live a good life, right? So get your head together, um, learn how to think about things correctly and clearly, develop those right character traits, and you'll be able to appreciate things when things go well, and you'll be able to cope when things don't go well. So that's the key to, to living a good life, they argue. Yeah, that's a that foundational kind of that was so revolutionary for me. It kind of it ties in nicely to the Stoic fork or the kind of dichotomy of control that seems to be so important for Stoicism. The kind of focusing on the things that are under your control, your character, your beliefs, your attitudes, your actions, and then being indifferent, not necessarily thinking that they're bad or good, but just recognizing what you don't control and not overvaluing that. I think Epictetus said that that's kind of the the cause of all suffering really is like mixing those two things up um, and that that's such a start. I think today, maybe nowadays, I don't know if it's social media or I'm, I'm starting a PhD looking in ethics of social media companies at the moment. Um, and the more you kind of look at that, the more the technology kind of takes you out of your um, comfort zone or out of your sphere of control. Um, so I wonder, you know, if you could say anything about the sphere of control, is that something that you see as being, central to stoicism yeah i mean so there's a kind of a parallel right so um 
I mean, as I was saying a moment ago, we've got this sort of distinction thinking about what we need in order to live a good life, right? And what we need is is these internal things and perhaps pay a bit less attention to all the external stuff. And then mapping onto that, you've got this distinction about control, right? So by happy coincidence, the one thing you really need to focus on to to live a good life is in fact the one thing you've only the one thing you've got control over, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that marries up quite nicely. Um and all of those external things that so many people, so many of us spend so much energy and effort pursuing, I mean, ultimately, we can never guarantee that things will work out the way we want them to. And if we invest all of our sense of success or satisfaction or worth in achieving those things, and we can't control whether we're going to get them or not, there's a sense in which we we put our happiness in the hands of fortune, right? It becomes really vulnerable um, because um, it's whether we get it or not is going to be determined by so many other contingent factors, right? So, um, yeah, so we've got we've got those those two distinctions kind of map onto each other, um, you know, very very neatly. And so, as you mentioned, Epictetus is going to insist that if we focus all of our attention on the things that we can actually change, and ultimately that's just how we think about things, right? I mean. In fact, Epictetus is really quite shocking when you think about what he says. You know, you don't control anything in the external world. You can't control how other people think or what they think about you. You can't control whether events go your way or not. You can't control your own body, right? Because it can get sick whether you like it or not, right? You can have some horrific medical diagnosis and there's nothing you can do about it. That's out of your control. And we don't even control our perceptions, right? In the sense that, you know, you don't control what information is 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 fed into your body, right? You can be walking down the street, turn a corner, see some horrific accident, right? And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You don't even control the content that comes in, in a sense. All you control are how you think about the things that you encounter in the world. The value judgments you make about it. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that worth pursuing? Um, should I get upset about this? Am I going to let this make me angry? That's it. That's that's the only thing we control. But at the same time, that's the thing that's going to determine whether we, uh, you know, enjoy our journey through life or not. Yeah, and it's almost it kind of is a little bit terrifying, as you were saying it there, in terms of the the amount of things which you don't control, which are just kind of you know almost everything and how the Stoics almost pitched that as a as good news, I think is really interesting. Like, that, that you know, the good news is at least there is something you can control. Um, and that kind of ties in nicely to the, the, the idea of that we don't suffer so much from events, but from the way we think about them, from the meaning that we attribute to the events. Um, and is that something that you see for, I suppose for me, it was a kind of, a practice of reflecting on myself, on my judgments, on the value judgments that I make about things. You know, when you make a judgment and then that causes the emotional reaction to the judgment. Um, and in that specific mindset, um, I wonder, is there any tips you can give to it? I suppose maybe I've explained it there. I don't know if there'd be, um, if it's a, a useful way to go, but that reflective capacity seems to be so important for Stoicism on your judgments and on your kind of, yeah, for your emotions. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the first most important thing is really to come to see the, that you're, you know, let's, let's stick with emotions for the minute, to come to see that your emotions are in fact the product of your judgments, to gain that kind of distance. So, um, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes we're in a good mood, sometimes we're in a bad mood, sometimes we're laid back and relaxed, sometimes we're, we're uptight and anxious, right? I, we all, you know, have good days and bad days. And the same sort of event will sometimes provoke a really bad reaction in us, and other times it'll barely affect us at all. And if we can just kind of reflect on those different experiences that we have at different times, we'll start to see, well, wait a minute, it's not the event in itself. Um, there's something I'm bringing to the table that's determining how it is that this is affecting me. So that's kind of one, I think, you know, um, key step to kind of to see the role that our own judgments play. Um, I mean, and particularly in, in our interactions with other people. I mean, how often do we say things like he made me so angry? You know, and and the Stoics are going to want to shift the responsibility there and say, no, no, you know, I let him, you know, um, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I let myself get angry, um, 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 in response to this person's behaviour, but my anger is is ultimately my responsibility. Um, I can't blame it on other people. Um, so. So that's that's I think the first step. Gain gain that distance and take responsibility for your, for your emotional life. Yeah, and that I suppose it kind of pitches the benefits of taking responsibility for your emotional life as well. Because I know these days, I suppose with triggers and that kind of stuff, there's a lot of I suppose blame on other people that make you upset. Um, and so it's a very radical position, I suppose, to say you kind of we are all complicit in our own emotional reactions, I suppose, that we, in some sense, subscribe to them before they happen. And I completely agree with that. I think for myself, I found a lot of benefit paying attention to that. But um, do you think that's a controversial idea for nowadays, or is it something that you just see as beneficial for people? I mean, I guess it's in, in some ways, I guess it's increasingly controversial. I mean, in the way in which you know there's a, a certain younger generation a lot younger than me maybe even younger than you i don't know um yeah. who will really uh, talk, talk of you know talk, talk about the ways in which you know um their emotional responses are so important and yeah. you know the world has to change in order for it not to offend them um which yeah. you know i have to say you know as as a you know increasingly grumpy old man just seems like a, a crazy way to try and navigate the world i mean the uh, i mean you know, a huge part of just just living in the world is um encountering things that you can't control many of which you might not like and if you're going to get upset and outraged by all of those things you're just going to have a really bad time <laughs> it's just going to be terrible like it's not not a winning strategy i think um at all but um yeah i mean it's it the the kind of i know there's a lot of so interesting kind of science behind this as well at this point which is kind of backing up the the relationship between emotions and judgments and how our perceptions are structured by our beliefs about the world um 
I wonder, is that something that you're interested in as well? Because I know Stoicism as a philosophy can be taken kind of, you can do it yourself. But there's also, I think, interesting evidence kind of emerging for its validity. Even something that you mentioned earlier, like pleasure and pain. Um, like in neuroscience, the pressure-pain balance. Um, I had Dr. Anna Lemke on the podcast who spoke about that and the functioning of dopamine. That kind of maps on really well to the ancient wisdom. I wonder, is that something you're interested in or exploring as well? Because it seems like a good way to justify the philosophy to people, maybe to young people that aren't, that are kind of um, resistant to it in a sense. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't looked looked into that kind of thing so much. Um, um, but I, yeah, I've read various things that have suggested those, um, those, yeah. those parallels. Um, but interestingly, to take a very different sort of tack as to how people you know really connect with this material um so you know a, a friend of of ours who was involved in stoic week at the beginning uh a chap called jules evans who wrote a book called oh, yeah. um yeah. philosophy for life and other dangerous situations um i mean one of the things that he used to say was this one of the great attractions of the ancient stoic writers compared to say you know modern self-help books or, or or cbt manuals or whatever is that they're just incredible writers someone like seneca or marcus aurelius they just have this incredible way of really packing a punch in the way that they write it's just great literature and I, my sense is that that's the thing that really grabs people right so um i mean i think those sorts of scientific parallels are, are interesting to note but, you know, a really well-crafted passage in Marcus Aurelius that just really puts the punch out. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that people really, really connect with, I think. So it's the fact that these ideas are written up in such a really powerful, striking way that I think is a really big part of the appeal to Stoic uh, of Stoicism to people of all ages. Yeah, and they kind of, the way they're written in aphorisms as well, that they're usually very short and poetic and punchy and kind of, easy to rhyme off or remember is there any particular bit say from marcus aurelius or any piece of like kind of stoic wisdom that you like to have kind of off the cuff um that that you remember in that way oh there are dozens um so yeah, yeah i mean i think you, you alluded to it earlier there's that line in in epictetus um it's not things that upset us but our judgments about things that's a, a good one mm. to keep uh, close to hand um a great one in times of crisis from Seneca. Um, disaster is virtue's opportunity. Um, I love that. Ooh. That's great. Yeah, nice. Right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's only when things go really badly that you have to step up and kind of show who you really are. And it's like, you know, okay, now's the time to be brave or courageous or, or, mm. or resilient. Um, when the times are good, you don't get to kind of really show what you can do. So um, it's a kind of a way of putting a positive spin on difficult situations. Um, so I really like that. Um, yeah. And there are, there are just so many passages in Marcus, Aure Marcus Aurelius oh, sorry, where he stresses mm -hmm. um, the kind of the, the shortness of human life, the brevity of human existence compared to the, the vast expanse of the cosmos, which is just a great way to kind of put us in our place and remind us of how trivial and insignificant most of our everyday worries and concerns are. I think that's always good if you're feeling overwhelmed by the trivialities of sort of everyday life and work. 
um he's always good for that yeah and i i've done before the um what is the name but the it's a stoic exercise the view from above which people can look up as well if they're interested i know donald does a version of it essentially where you're kind of zooming out on the world to get like a perspective on your problems um in a kind of a yeah to kind of put it in context but not to look at life as kind of meaningless or empty um there was something you touched on there with disasters being the the opportunity which i think is such a brilliant quote um and kind of reminds me of sun tzu as well or in the um in the art of war and that there's you know in chaos there's opportunity is do you see any parallels between these kind of ancient ideas that you think are kind of universal in nature or do you think these are just specifically western ideas i mean i think there are all sorts of all sorts of parallels in in um indian and, and chinese philosophy for sure um lots mm. of people have noted parallels between certain stoic ideas and ideas in buddhism um so i think that's quite common and and i think a few people have noted uh some themes in in something like Taoism and yeah. um stoicism yeah. as well and that idea of sort of living in harmony with nature comes through in Taoism. yeah um, alongside that was stoicism. something i was going to ask you about um because i know you speak a lot about the stoic yeah. nature and it's something that's always i've kind of found at times confusing i wonder um what do they mean by nature when they talk about and living in harmony with nature because it doesn't seem like they just mean like wildlife or the environment it, it seems to be more a bit deeper than that yeah i mean i think it works on a number of different levels so um i think on one level they're talking about living sort of in tune or living consistently with nature as a whole so not fighting against what happens um not struggling against external events um, so again, to pick up, pick up a Taoist idea, Wu Wei, kind of go with the flow, um, yeah. you know, it, to sort of put it really colloquially, right? You know, if this is what the world is doing, then you can either fight against it and be miserable, or you can just accept it and go with, go with the flow. So there's that kind of idea of of not fighting against natural events, um, but there's also the idea of living in harmony with human nature, right? So um, to kind of acknowledge what we are as human beings, as rational animals and social animals, and to em embrace that as well. Um, and then when, when Cicero talks about this idea, he also talks about our individual human natures, which I think is a nice spin on it that people might not immediately think of, right? So, you know, some of us are introverts, extroverts, some of us are artistic, some of us are, are really athletic, whatever it might be, right? We've all got different individual unique natures. And again, what Cicero says is, well, if you're kind of fighting against that, right? If you're not really in tune with who you really are as an individual, that's going to lead to all sorts of internal sort of conflict and tension as well. So you need to kind of be in harmony with your individual unique nature, you know, find out who you are and, and don't fight against that. You need to kind of be a good human being, um, you know, be a good social animal. Um, and you also need not to you know, fight against the external world. So, as you say, it's really quite, quite deep. There are a number of different levels going on in that very simple phrase, live according to nature.
That's incredible. I'd never even really thought I'd uh, kind of, I guess, I guess the, the human nature idea, but the idea of like your temperament as a kind of nature as well. And not having that inner conflict is so rich. Um, I wonder, does it connect to Plato at all? Cause I, I know Plato kind of, a lot of his work kind of about ending the kind of inner civil war, but, um, it might be a bit of a tangent. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's such a fascinating idea. Mm, yeah, I mean, certainly um, avoiding any internal conflict for sure is is really, really, really key um, for the Stoics, right? I mean, they they talk about the ideal life being involving a smooth flow. We want a smooth flow of life, so avoiding any kind of of, of inner turmoil. Um, they differ from Plato, and, and this comes back to something we were talking about earlier, actually, right? About taking responsibility for your emotions. Because Plato's kind of talking about internal conflict between your rational mind and then some other irrational part of yourself, right? So your emotions or your desires, which are these kind of unruly, irrational elements that your 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 rational mind has to somehow harness and control. And one scholarly commentator says, well, this is a terrible way to think of your mind because what you're effectively doing is you're putting all of those things like your emotions into some other kind of part of yourself and you're saying well that wasn't my fault right my emotions got the better of me you know it's not my fault that i got really angry and hit that person i was out of control and the stoics are going to want to challenge that kind of idea and say no 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 you take full responsibility for um um getting excessively angry and, and and hitting that guy because it was based on a value judgment that you made and you had the ability not to have made that judgment. So you can't just say, oh, it was my anger. It's not my fault. Yeah, Plato kind of decouples them in a way that, yeah, kind of just gets you out of responsibility, I suppose. And anger is a pretty important topic for the Stoics um, that comes up a lot. Um, is that something that you found interesting in your work um, in terms of their kind of tips for dealing with anger and those more kind of powerful emotions yes it's um i mean in part it's a kind of a a quirk of of textual transmission because the mm. the only really long text on the emotions that we've got that survived is this work by seneca called on anger where oh, he right. talked about it in in great detail right um so if other texts have survived we might you know um, have a slightly different picture but even so i think the stoics would would think regardless of that that anger is the probably the most dangerous and destructive of emotions so the most important one to address and when seneca talks about it obviously he's high up in in roman uh, government his big concern is when people in power get angry and their emotions get out of control right we only have to think about events at the moment in Ukraine, for instance, right, where, you know, the emotions or the anger or the paranoia of one extremely powerful person can have absolutely horrific consequences for thousands and thousands of people. Um, and that's where anger becomes really, really dangerous when it's coupled with power. Mm. So that's why it's so important and so urgent for them. Yeah, and I suppose Seneca as well, having to be uh, teaching Nero, probably knew a lot about that in terms of the risky position he was in. I know Marcus Aurelius kind of talks on it as well. I, I remember Donald saying in one of his books that the, 
he found something like 10 techniques for dealing with anger in Marcus Aurelius. And he was kind of looking at the CBT literature and thinking like, would they have 10 techniques for dealing with anger? Like, is this guy so far ahead of things, even though it was so long ago? Um, do you think that the lives of these characters are kind of, that their lives are so significant that they kind of glean this wisdom from that, from the the harshness of the, the positions they found themselves in? I mean, I think all, all of them must have had some pretty... Um a pretty demanding life experiences for sure i mean seneca's life was all all over the place i mean i mean he suffered from debilitating illness he was exiled a couple of times you know he was almost executed once and then you know more, more or less executed by the end um he's ex exiled for 10 years um so yeah some some really you know um quite you know um character building experiences we might say um, and then Epictetus too. I mean, he's born a slave, taken from his homeland as a child. Um, we don't even know his. We don't even know his original name, or if he even had a name as a child. I mean, Epictetus just means acquired, right? So that's just the name of a slave. Um, he was crippled as well, um, and according to one story, that was an injury that was caused by um, his ma his master breaking his leg. So he was also then gained his freedom, but then exiled from Rome. And, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, all sorts of experiences that many of us in, in the West today couldn't imagine going through. Um, and even someone like Marcus Aurelius, I mean, he and his wife had something like a dozen children. And I think maybe three made it to adulthood. I mean, can you can you imagine having to bury six, seven, eight babies? I mean, I mean, that was commonplace in the ancient world. And I mean, I guess it's not that uncommon in some parts of the developing world today. But in, talk about, you know, tough life experiences that most of us are, are fortunate enough not to not to have to go through. Yeah, I know. First world problems, it kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And it, having to bury those children while being the emperor of the largest empire that ever existed and dealing with barbarian hordes and civil wars and it does it does lend a kind of depth to the writing um that when you know how they lived and how you know i'd encourage people to that's kind of part of the magic i think of the philosophy is also the philosopher um behind it and we talked kind of briefly about it earlier i mean the guy that they all trace it back to socrates who had you know a tough life himself um is, is socrates really the stoic model is he i know they kind of think of him as the ideal sage um could you look at Stoicism as, you know, trying to inculcate in people that a kind of Socrates mindset almost? Yeah, I mean, I think that's not a bad way of, of thinking about it. Um, I think according to one of our sources, the very, very early, some of the very early Stoics were happy to be called Socratics, we're told. And there's a great line in, in Epictetus where he says, if you're not already a Socrates, you ought to spend your life trying to become a Socrates. So he, yeah, he really is the kind of um, the, the 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 grandfather of that tradition, we might say. Um, and many of the key ideas about virtue can be traced right back to, to him. And of course, he has this famous trial and execution that Plato writes up. And so he's got this kind of sort of heroic martyrdom where he dies 
know, in the name of studying philosophy. Um, and so, I mean, not just for the Stoics, but for a number of other schools of philosophy, he just becomes the kind of the archetypal, um, you know, model of the of the wise person. Yeah, he's a kind of um, philosophical martyr in a way. There's um, it's kind of interesting how that then I suppose a change to Christianity kind of just after Stoicism. How you see, I've heard you speak about Pierre Hadot before, and I'm a big fan of um, his work and how Christianity kind of adopts elements of Stoic thought um, and kind of turns it into Christian thought. Um, do you think, I mean, w was Christianity kind of the end of Stoicism? Was that the, or did they just kind of do what they did so well and incorporate Christianity into, or incorporate Stoicism into the body of knowledge? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's very difficult to know what happens towards the sort of end of antiquity. I mean, around the time that Marcus Aurelius is alive, so the second century AD, my impression is there was still quite a lot of interest in Stoicism and the texts were still available and there are quite a few people that are talking about it. But after that point, it really starts to sort of disappear off the radar and we don't hear so much about it. And this is around the time that there's a huge revival in Plato's philosophy and we get Platonism or um, people often refer to it as Neoplatonism in late antiquity. And so this becomes the dominant uh, sort of Greek pagan philosophy in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries um, par in parallel with the time that Christianity really comes to the fore and becomes really powerful. And then through someone like Saint Augustine, those platonic ideas have a big influence on the development of Christianity. Um, but someone like Seneca never really goes away, and he remains a big influence. And um, St. Jerome is a, is a big fan of Seneca, and a number of the other Latin church fathers are reading Seneca. And then throughout the Middle Ages, Seneca's works continue to be read. And mm -hmm. there are various points where Seneca refers to God or providence, and he's thinking about these ideas in a very stoic way, but because basically he's writing about ethics and doesn't go into all of those sort of theological details, you can get lots of Christian readers in the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance who'll read Seneca and then they'll just take those references to God and providence and, and assume that they can kind of um, align those with their, their, their Christian beliefs. So Seneca kind of gives an ethics that, that looks broadly acceptable to um uh, to, to a Christian leadership throughout that period. And kind of mar yeah, can marry them up, which is an interesting kind of convergence as well in terms of the secular worldview with somehow Stoicism being able to become such a powerful force in a society that's, you know, supposedly without any, you know, religion or any sort of value system. Um, and the Stoic idea of God, I mean, it, it is alluded to, sometimes it's God, sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's providence. Um, I wondered if you could go into that a little bit, because again, like the nature, it's something that's always kind of confused me. Yeah, I mean, so, so strictly speaking, the Stoic God is nature, or it is mm. the um, sort of the the rational principle that animates and controls nature, right? So there's no. There's no separate external supernatural God, according to the Stoics. Um, God is 
the soul of of the natural world it's it's quite literally something physical that permeates the natural world so um so they're pantheists in effect right and and some of the texts will talk about gods in the plural and they're you know perhaps just taking into account that kind of traditional pagan mythology of the sort of pantheon of gods um and you'll get some accounts that will give really complicated they'll you know they'll marry this up and they'll identify those with with heavenly bodies and stuff like that but the core stoic idea is that um that god is god is nature uh, and we are parts of nature so we are parts of this single organic um divine animal if you like right so i mean again that's not necessarily an idea people are going to straightforwardly buy today right um yeah. but it means that they it means that they don't believe in any supernatural entities um which mm-hmm. is something that might kind of connect with how people think today um yeah and their idea of providence as well is kind of almost like a, a causal determinism in a way that things have started since the beginning of time and that we're kind of caught up in them and we don't really control them so it kind of links up almost with a materialist scientific worldview in a way there in if you strip away i suppose the kind of the additional language um yeah yeah i think that's a, that's a good way of putting it um you can talk about nature you can talk about cause and effect you can talk about fate which for the stoics is just kind of causation uh and you can put it in very scientific language or you can talk about god and you can talk about providence and you can describe exactly the same processes in more theological language and we see both of those things going on in um the in the ancient texts Mm. yeah and i suppose for people listening i mean you you don't have to subscribe to those things to get the benefits of the techniques and the the practices that you can kind of work into your daily routine the reflections meditations um those are kind of things that just work um and don't require i suppose any sort of a priori you know or metaphysical claims um to jump over a little bit john your latest book i think it's your latest book the pocket epicurean which i've started reading recently which is very good and again a topic which i'm not super familiar with how is it that stoicism and epicureanism are different is there you know can i kind of elucidate some of the nuances of stoicism by comparing the two Mm, it's so so epicurus was a another greek philosopher active in athens around the same time that zeno the founder of stoicism was active so they're contemporaries and these two schools develop um, um in parallel in athens um in at that time and the traditional story says that these two schools were kind of radically in opposition to one another so the stoics think it's all about virtue and character and developing that frame of mind whereas the epicureans think it's all about pleasure right um increase pleasure and avoid pain and that's the key um and again thinking about the physics while the stoics have this pantheistic idea that nature is some kind of organic unity the epicureans think it's just kind of blind dead matter moving around contingently with no great order or plan so that's the traditional view right that they're they're polar opposites but i mean i think there's a uh, there's quite a lot of common ground as well so 
for instance, both schools are ultimately um, materialist. They think that all the things that exist are physical bodies. So in that sense, you can see how they might appeal to modern readers. Um, both schools, again, are empiricists. So they both think all of our knowledge just comes through the senses straightforwardly. Again, it seems like, feels like a fairly modern view. Um, and also, both schools are going to suggest that ultimately the key to a good, happy life is internal mental tranquility right so the stoics will talk about avoiding those difficult emotions like anger and um, avoiding that kind of internal conflict that we were talking about earlier and similarly the epicureans are going to insist that it's internal anxiety and fear and things like this that are the things that are most likely going to stop us living a good life and so we need to find antidotes or cures for those things that are causing us distress so that we can live well so there's a sense in which there's a they're they're, they're engaged on the same project right and they give slightly different answers um and i think we can learn some kind of useful lessons from both of them and to go back to seneca very briefly um seneca was a great reader of epicurus and um and the roman epicurean um lucretius and seneca often borrows Epicurean ideas where he thinks they've got something interesting to say. So in the spirit of Seneca, I'm kind of, you know, more of a Stoic, but I think we can still learn some good lessons from the Epicureans as well. That's funny. I always find that very interesting in Seneca whenever he does quote uh, Epicurus, because I had, it's kind of with like a friendly rival almost, like complimenting kind of the, the opposing football team or something. Um, but yeah, and for in terms of this goal being like peace of mind or inner kind of tranquility there's a difference kind of in how the epicureans go about this isn't there that they seek kind of a mental pleasure almost like you know would i be wrong to say living in the moment but kind of accepting it how do they pursue this inner peace so the the, the Epicureans think that um, they, they think that mental pleasure and pain is more important than physical pleasure and pain in terms of the quality of our life overall, right? We can stub our toe, we can have toothache, and these things are unpleasant, but we can cope with them. But it's the, it's the mental pleasures and pains that are really key. And although pleasures are all well and good, in fact, the most important thing is overcoming mental pain, um, overcoming you know, anxiety, fear, discomfort along the ways I was describing. And they think the key to it actually is to study the way the world works, to study nature, to do physics, because they think that ultimately it's holding mistaken beliefs that lead us to have all sorts of anxiety. I mean, in particular, they talk about sort of fear of the gods, fear of divine punishment um, and also fear of death and they think that if we can kind of understand the way the world works we'll realize that many of our anxieties about these sorts of things are actually unjustified so they think it's by doing science and doing philosophy we can clear out those confused superstitious beliefs that, that might keep us awake at night yeah that like understanding yeah. of salvation I, I remember reading that um that is so interesting and it's almost so stoic in a way as well that stoicism except it's rather than understanding the physics i suppose it's overcoming the false beliefs um 
and death being one of those, uh, you know, in Stoicism, the memento mori, having an awareness of death, but also Socrates really goes into the whole, you know, that death isn't something to be so, the fear of death is worse than, you know, what it is. Um, how did the Epicureans deal with death? Do they have a similar kind of memento mori, or what perspectives do they take on it? Yeah, I mean, the contrast with Socrates is a good one because, I mean, the way Plato tells the story, um, the way that Socrates deals with fear of death is to argue that the soul is immortal and that there's nothing to worry about because this isn't going to be the end anyway, right? And you might say, well, that's that's Plato more than the historical Socrates. But nevertheless, that's the story that we get, right? Um, the Epicureans take the complete opposite path. So the Epicureans say, look, all that matters is pleasure and pain. Pleasure and pain are things that we gain through sensation, right? You, they're things you experience while you're alive. Death, by definition, is the absence of sensation. So death doesn't involve either pleasure or pain. It's, it's non-experience. And so if, by definition, it, ha it cannot have any pain, then it can't be bad. So it's the fact that death is complete annihilation and you're no longer there to experience anything means that it cannot be a bad state. And there's a sense in which we can't quite get our heads around the idea of our own non-existence, right? We kind of think we're still going to be there observing things in some way. And if we could really grasp that it was complete annihilation, we'd realize there's literally nothing to fear because there's nothing, right? So that's the Epicurean argument. Well, that's quite not a bad old argument. I was trying to <laughs> consider, uh, yeah, trying to wrap my head around that. But um, that, that is fascinating. And they have an interesting idea of time. Is that something that you looked into as well? Because something in Stoicism that comes up as well is this kind of, that the future and the past are just in the head and they're a kind of, you know, you can get wrapped up in them big time, dwelling on it, worrying about the future, and that that's actually not mentally healthy, that, that that's kind of the root cause of a lot of, you know, that the present is all that we have and you should stick to that if you can. Is it the same in uh, Epicureanism? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think in part the Epicureans would suggest that we focus on um, the present moment, uh, enjoy the immediate pleasures that are right in front of us, right? Rather than, um, you know, anxiously worrying about the future. So in that sense, I think like the Stoics, there'd be a, a stress on on the present moment for sure. Um, the other one thing the Epicureans do talk quite a lot about, though, is the pleasure we can gain from memories of past experiences, right? So. You know, if you go out and you have some good time with some friends, good conversation, you have great experience, you know, later on in other difficult times, you can reflect back on those good memories and you can gain pleasure from those pleasant memories. And that's a way in which you can experience pleasure in a context where, you know, you might also be you know, undergoing suffering in some ways. So Epicurus thinks we've got these great internal reserves of pleasure in our memories that we can draw on where, where, wherever we are. And, and so that's a kind of another strategy that he um, suggests. That's really interesting. Cause you, you can almost, I'm kind of thinking of like the stoic perspective of 
pleasure as kind of like a, a trapping or something, or this kind of attitude of that, yeah, pleasure is potentially good, potentially bad, but one of the kind of things that you should be indifferent to. Um, is that something you'd agree with from the Stoic perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you're absolutely right. The Stoics are much more, more, more suspicious about that. And um, I suppose the question is whether whether they're right to be so suspicious about pleasure, right? Um, perhaps we might want to be a bit, you know, not quite so harsh as some of the Stoics. And well, maybe a, a little bit of pleasure is not going to cause us so much trouble um, after all. I mean, you know, the, I, I mean, so I guess strictly speaking, right, the Stoic view is going to be, you know, pleasure is an emotion best avoided because it means you've made a value judgment that something happening right now is genuinely good. And really speaking, it's not genuinely good. It's just something that is, you know, um, preferable perhaps, but it's not really the thing that matters. What matters is that internal frame of mind. Um, now, I mean, I think there's a, I think there is something very noble and very admirable about that view, but um, I imagine few of us really manage to live up to that all of the time. And sometimes when something really nice happens, you just want to say, this is really great. This is really genuinely good. And I'm really going to enjoy this right now. I mean, I don't think that that's the worst sort of worst sin to commit. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be kind of ruin the party as well if you're kind of just telling everybody not to be indifferent to the fun and merriment. Um, kind of like what Seneca says when somebody dies or something and he kind of says, hey, look, everybody dies, get over it. And you're kind of thinking, well, maybe that's not the advice to give to somebody immediately after a terrible thing but um and also just i suppose but, an interesting his, oh sorry go ahead no i was just going to say well here's here's the rub right so the the stoic response would be well that's all very well for you to have this great feeling of pleasure when things are really worked out and you're having a great time but the more you think like that the less likely you're going to be satisfied when things don't go well uh, the more likely you're going to complain when it's not a really nice situation. So it's great to experience those high points of pleasure when things are great. But over the course of your life, how many really great moments like that are there going to be? And it's as important not to complain about the bad situations as it is to, to enjoy the good ones. Yeah, nice. And there was something there I was thinking about as well, which is in terms of the modern times being kind of you know, that we're sort of people of leisure, we have a lot more time, there's a lot more access to food, to merriment, to everything else, that the rise of stoicism as well could be a way of combating that, um, of keeping, you know, self-control in times of abundance, um, which is very important in terms of temperance. Um, and I wanted to ask you about the kind of core values of, sto of stoicism being the wisdom, virtue, courage, temperance, justice. Um, and, you know, how do you see, Donald had said to me that those values are actually older than Stoicism. I, I wondered, is there anything on those values? Um, how Do you see them as being kind of universal? Um, or are they just this, they've kind of occurred in this context? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're kind of part of a set of traditional Greek 
values that that mm-hmm. um yeah pre predate the stoa socrates will talk about these virtues aristotle will talk about them as well mm-hmm. so there's a sense in which they're sort of culturally specific you might say well this is you know this is just coming out of the values of of, of ancient, greece. ancient greece but mm-hmm. but but you know i mean a, a a virtue like justice feels like it's something more universal right and people might have arguments about how you define it but the 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 virtue of justice seems fairly universal and something like moderation and avoiding extremes that seems like a um um, a value that you find in something like buddhism right the middle way um so i mean they feel to me like they're fairly universal um universal virtues that, that are quite easy to um pick out and think yeah i can see why people would um think that those are important traits to cultivate yeah absolutely and that there is something interesting i kind of thought or well that i learned from um colin de young who's a personality psychologist was that he looks at values as goals and that human beings are these kind of cybernetic systems that need goals in order to pursue and that a value in some sense like courage is actually a goal that you aspire to and in, in situations to kind of act out um which i thought was such a fascinating way of look because a value almost seems a bit nebulous like okay i value it but what does that mean or, you know how do i what do i do with it um you know how do we live out these values in our our lives if we want to be more stoic um how, how do you think we can do yeah. that it's a giant question but <laughs> no it's a, it's a really good one so as you say you know value sounds very abstract right so we're talking about virtues what's a virtue it's a character trait and what's a character trait well it's basically just a habit right the courageous person is the person who habitually does courageous things the moderate person is the person who sticks to their diet who doesn't spend too much money, who has moderate habits. Um, so that's what we're really talking about, right? We're talking about developing the right types of habits that um, embody who it is we want to be, the sort of person we'd like to be, um, the person who isn't out of control, right? The person who's fair and and just towards the people around them. And, um, you know, we all know developing new habits is, is difficult right and uh, it can be hard to do that but um it's do it requires some persistence some training we're not all going to get it right first time um but it's it's something that that can be done and we can all modify our behavior in certain ways and um, epictetus i mean you know there's a that old there's an old cliche of something like you know the you know every journey starts with a single step or or whatever it might be but but Epictetus says, you know, if you want to develop a new habit, you have to start with a single action and then repeat that action and repeat it. And over time, it will become your habitual way of responding to certain situations. So there's a sense in which it's quite easy to know how we start on this journey. Um, and, and, uh, and, and the hard bit is really getting these things to embed. Yeah, and that, there was something really interesting that you said there, which was the kind of the admiration of the people that of these habits, kind of in a way that to, you know, not to be out of control, to be courageous, to be moderate. That that we aspire to that in some sense, and that we recognise that that's good in other people. 
And it's almost like that these values are like abstracted out from what the most admirable person would have and that they're kind of communicating an ideal almost that we could follow and habitually incorporate. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And this brings us back to Socrates. So one way to think about all of this is not to think about abstract values, but to think about admirable people. So it's not virtues, it's role models, right? And who's the virtuous role model? So again, back to this line that I mentioned from Epictetus earlier on, you know, if you are not already a Socrates, you should you should try to become a Socrates. You should try to try to live up to this role model who's the living example of the sort of person you'd like to be. And so in ancient philosophy in general, um, role models, uh, wise figures become really important. And so we were talking a bit earlier about the Epicureans. And so Epicurus becomes he's you know, he's the role model that everyone wants to emulate. Um, and that's why we get all of these biographical stories about all these ancient philosophers that kind of bring the personalities to life, because it's about a concrete example of, OK, this is this is how I want to live my life like this person does. He's the example. And maybe that's why they survive for so long through so many different cultures and generations, because it is such an example to follow no matter when it is um, and that people are inspired by it. And that it has real benefits. We've actually gone a little bit over time there, John, but I thank you so much for this conversation. That was really, um, I've learned so much and it was really inspirational. Thank you for your time. Uh, my pleasure. And is there anywhere people, I know you have your website. Um, what, what's your, is the latest book, the Epi Korean book? I'll put a link to it um, in the description so people can go and find them. Um, is there any other places you'd like people to go? Um, yes, so um, that that book is is published as um, the fourfold remedy um, in the UK and and many other parts of the world, and the US edition is called the Pocket Epicurean, um, and and that's the the follow up to uh, Lessons in Stoicism in the UK, which is the Pocket Stoic in the US. Um, so publishers like to do different things in different areas, which is a bit confusing sometimes. But yeah, those those are the two books that I'd uh, uh, um, I'd recommend for people just starting off. Amazing! Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Boom! I hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, with Dr. John Sellers. The links to his book are in the description. Highly recommend checking them out. Developing some of your thinking about stoicism. Um, getting more mental health, more tools that you can use to deal with your emotions. And if you're interested in more work, subscribe to the Substack. There's going to be blogs, there's going to be podcasts, um, I'll be sharing lots of cool stuff. And that's where I'm going to live now. So if you want to come visit, drop on by. All right, have a good one. Oh.